You know, I want to dive right into the Word. I've been loving this series that we've been doing on the sermons, the messages that are found in the book of Acts. So we've had to skip over some really cool history uh, because what we're focusing on, while we touch on that history, what we're really focusing on are those messages, the gospel being preached to different types of people at different seasons of time, but still having that power, that gospel always having the power to save, deliver, to set free, to change a person, to change a city, to change a church. And uh, right now we are seeing the transition. We, we have, if you've been reading along with us, they start with the Jewish people, uh, the gospel going to them, preaching Jesus as the Messiah. And often the message there was not just that Jesus was the Messiah, but proving to the people that actually the scriptures foretold that not only would there be a Messiah, but that the Messiah would suffer. That was a major hitching point for many of them. They just thought when the Messiah comes, he, he triumphs, but that he had to suffer just like Jesus suffered for us and that he would rise again. And Peter proved that through the, the Psalms. You know, there's many different ways that they emphasize that truth. And then they move on to not just, they don't desert the Jews, they keep ministering to the Jewish people, but the gospel also expands to the Gentiles. And you see in those messages, uh, proclaiming God as the one true God, the creator, uh, uh, telling them that God is not only the one true God, the creator, but the judge, that there'll be a day where everyone must give an account for the life that they lived here. These are the things that are resonating with people who may not have any context of scripture. Then we talked about how the church dealt with each other in Acts chapter 15, how they, how they uh, came to terms with God doing something that was beyond what they expected and, and that they didn't quite have any um, firm definitions for it first, but that there had to be unity on this and that unity was found in the word and the spirit that the prophets, the law, the Psalms and the Holy Spirit and the work he'd been doing, it all came together. Now, we, we've talked about what happened in Acts 17 where Paul went to Athens, and now we're going to find out what happened when Paul went to Ephesus. There's a whole lot in between there that I wish we had time to study, and we did do a verse-by-verse -verse study of the book of Acts a few years ago. If you want to go on the uh, website and look at the podcast, you sure can, but I want to focus right now on what happens in Ephesus. Ephesus is a major city. It's a port city. It's a city uh, that's full of commerce a city that is multicultural, a city that's bringing in a lot of money, a city that's basically the gateway to the province of Asia Minor. That's a Roman province. Now, when we say the word Asia, that's confusing because today we see Asia as what they would have considered the far, far east. Uh, Asia Minor is, is really mostly encompassed in what we know now as Turkey. Okay, so that's that. Uh, it's across uh, the it's across the water from Greece and Macedonia, and uh, just across from Byzantium. Here you find yourself in Asia Minor. Ephesus was that city that you would often pull up to on a ship. You would be uh, uh, just in awe of the statues, the buildings, of the magnificence of this great city. And this would be the city you'd start at, you know, if you were going further in. Uh, you would often start right here in Ephesus and then journey further down the road. It's, it's an important city in world history. It's also a very important city in Christian history because it's this place um, where we see not only the gospel preached here, 
But we, of course, get the great letter to the Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. It's here where Timothy is uh, sent to, to pastor and to minister. It's here, uh, church history tells us that John, the apostle John, spent a great deal of his time and that maybe even Mary, the mother of Jesus, lived here for a time. It's, it's here that Jesus speaks to them as one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. It's here that it was also probably the opening port uh, to all those other, uh, those six other churches that we find in the book of Revelation, that these, ci- these cities, these churches all had uh, a relative proximity to one another. And it likely began at Ephesus and you just follow the road down to Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamum, all those places. So let's talk about what happened when Paul pulls up to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, First thing, we won't go far into this, but the first thing we find is that he discovers a group of disciples who are familiar with the teachings of John, the baptism of John the Baptist. They're they're familiar with that baptism of repentance, but they don't know about Jesus as the Savior, the risen Savior. They haven't heard about this. They might have heard about, they they might have known about Jesus, but they don't know about uh, um, the, the one who's coming after him. They don't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't know about the resurrection. Paul tells them these things. He lays his hands on them and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to pray in tongues and prophesy. Then something happens. Paul goes into the city. These 12 guys are a great start. And he enters the synagogue and in verse 8, Acts 19, 8. He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, here's what happens. In every city that Paul went to, he would start with the synagogue. He'd start with the people that already believed in Yahweh, the one true God. They, they knew the scripture. So he would start from there and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Here we see that he proclaimed the kingdom of God. This is the message that Jesus proclaimed to the people of Israel when he walked the earth. It's the same message. Now you may say, uh, well, how often do we talk about the kingdom of God uh, every Sunday or from day to day? Well, the truth is, is that the kingdom of God encompasses the king and all uh, his ways, his domain, his rule, his authority. So in reality, when we're talking about Jesus as king and his his ways, his word, his this new life in him, how we follow, how we rule and reign with him, we're talking about the kingdom. Even those times we don't necessarily start the sermon saying, I'm going to preach about the kingdom. When you're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are preaching the kingdom. And really proclaiming Jesus as the risen king. What's different now that he is not just a man that we learn about from history, not just a guy who had some really smart things to say, but we're talking about a man who is really the son of God and the son of man at the same time. He's he's entirely God and entirely human. And he walks the earth showing us what God looks like, showing us what God is like, proclaiming this other kingdom that we have not always been submitted to or have not even known about. Not only does Jesus proclaim this, but he dies for our sins. He's put to death, but he lays his own life down, taking on the sins of the world. He's resurrected on the third day. And of course, you know, he spends those days, uh, the next, next few weeks with his disciples, with over 500 people proclaiming and showing them by many proofs that he's alive. Then 
He ascends to the Father and he sends his Holy Spirit to the church. And the Holy Spirit carries out the ministry of the kingdom, the ministry of Christ through the church. This is why every believer has a part to play in the kingdom of God. This is why every believer is important because you've been given a treasure. You've been given the spirit of the living God. And living God is important. He's not a dead God. He's not distant. He's not just a God, a figurehead. He's not a God of history. He is a living God right now. And so filled with the Holy Spirit, we see men like Paul and, and the people with him, like Aquila and Priscilla, who were fellow tent makers, but also a powerful husband and wife duo that was preaching the word of God. We see Saul, uh, Silas and Timothy and those that have gathered, uh, gone with him at different times. Luke, the man who wrote this book, a physician, a doctor, who is also a, quite a competent historian and writes what happens down. And as they enter, as, as those that, that are with Paul, we don't know exactly which ones are with him at the time, but we know that uh, there were Timothy and Erastus, later he's sent to Macedonia. We believe that, that uh, Aquila and Priscilla had gone with him. And when they get to uh, this, this magnificent city of Ephesus, you have to realize that as a tourist, you would have looked around and said, wow, but as a believer, you might have looked around and been horrified because what you would have seen were not just great buildings and statues, but those statues and those buildings meant something. You would have seen temples to all sorts of different gods and goddesses. You would have seen uh, uh, practices that took place that would have turned your stomach. You would have seen uh, things and, 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 and activities that you thought, uh, me, as, you know, if you were Paul, as a good Jew, I should not be even around this. But they went into the city knowing that that city needed the gospel. And as they go into this city, this is what happens. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Now, I want you to focus just for a minute on the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. It says that extraordinary miracles were taking place. We've talked about this before, but that number one implies that miracles were ordinary and that these were extraordinary. These were unusual. Why were they unusual? What was going on in Ephesus that required extraordinary miracles? I would propose to you that if you really study this chapter and you study history, what was going on in Ephesus was that there was extraordinary darkness that took extraordinary light, that took extraordinary miracles. In fact, most of the miracles we see in this chapter are directly tied to people being delivered from evil spirits or delivered from sorcery or idolatrous practices. There is a deep darkness in the city. You see, when Paul goes to the uh, synagogue, he, he receives favor. They let him preach there for three months. But it says that those were disobedient. Remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about that word disobedient. It's it's a word which basically means they chose not to believe. They made a choice not to believe. They hardened their hearts towards the gospel. See, these are people that refuse to believe that Jesus could or would be the true Messiah. And so they want Paul out of there. So Paul, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, put up a huge fight. He just takes the ones that have believed and he takes them to a new place. And they happen to find a place. It's called the School of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know if Tyrannus was the builder of the school or the teacher of the school, but this is a place where lectures were given. This is a place of education, maybe a place even of, where philosophy was taught. But it's, 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 it's a lecture theater, right? It's the School of Tyrannus 
and it's free at certain times during the day because the Greeks and, and, and people in Ephesus, they would have taken like a big chunk of the afternoon taking a big siesta. It, it was hot, so hot that you wouldn't want to be out, you wouldn't want to be working. So they'd take that time off. Nobody would be working, nobody would be doing their thing and school would be closed. So Paul is probably, that's time off from his business. He's, he's been, become a, a tent maker and he's plying his trade. It says that Aquila and Priscilla, they did the same job. So these guys made tents and in their off time, he's preaching the gospel. And he goes and he's preaching every day to the disciples. They are soaking in the word of the Lord. Uh, let me go back to that in verse 10. It says, this took place for two years. For two years, Paul is ministering in this school that God provided a way for them to minister in, and he's raising up disciples. Now, if all the whole point of him daily teaching for two years is just to raise up a bunch of people that have big old fat heads that know a bunch of information, uh, then it would be a, a colossal failure. What he's doing is he's, he's raising up disciples. The reason, one of the reasons we need to, to, to spend some time on this today is that we've spent some, some awesome time talking about the gospel being preached in places for the first time. Like when this message is preached to people and they believe in Jesus, it's a beautiful thing. I don't know if you remember when you first believed. Maybe it was last week. Maybe it was 30, 40 years ago. But when you first believed, what an amazing thing to believe in the gospel and you saw something change immediately. You know, things begin to change in your life. You're, you're not just changing your eternal destination. It's your eternity starting right now that's different. Like your life takes on a different nature altogether because something's happened on the inside of you. But you also would have found out that not everything changed at once, that this process was something that God was doing in you from grace to grace, from glory to glory, that uh, He was taking you from here to here to here, that He was sanctifying you. Uh, you know, He's already sanctified your spirit, but now He's beginning to sanctify your mind, your body, that he is, He's teaching you this is, this is the way you used to live, now this is the way you live now, that your mind is being renewed, the Bible says, according to, to His Word, according to the image of the one who created you. Suddenly, uh, you're having, not just suddenly, but even progressively, you're having to see your life become changed and revolutionized by the same gospel that saved you. Now that's important to remember. It's not that you were saved miraculously. You were saved by the grace of God and then everything else you just got to do on your own. No, it's the, the same way you were saved as the way you continue in the faith. The grace of God saved you. The grace of God through faith saved you. Now the grace of God through faith will keep you. This church is not just getting born again and saying, well, thank God I'm going to heaven. They're diving deep. Daily they're listening. They're taking, when they're off work, instead of going home for the nap, they're going to school. They're going to, the, to, they're going to learn. They're going to soak and, and be built up in the faith of being discipled. And I want you to see something else in this verse. It says, for two years, he's teaching daily in this school. And so it says, all that lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, this school is just Ephesus. Yet it says, all who lived in Asia, which is the whole province that Ephesus is in, all who lived in Asia were hearing the word of the Lord. What does that tell you? It says, if Paul was, was here, and for the most part, he's staying in Ephesus. Now, we, we have enough uh, evidence to believe he, he took some time and maybe went to Corinth, and he, he, didn't, he maybe didn't stay glued there every single day, but he spent his, the chunk of his time, his, 
his goal, his, his, the reason he's there is to minister to the Ephesians, is to disciple these people, to, to uh, establish this church in Ephesus before he moves on. And so it says, and so in this way, the gospel spread throughout all of Asia. Now we know that Paul likely went to some of these other places, but I, I would propose to you that, that, that part of this gospel being spread through all of Asia is not just that Paul kept going to different places, but that these people did. That these disciples that are coming to hear the word of the Lord, they're being built up, they're being raised up. That several of them went back to where they were from or, or maybe spread out to places they hadn't been. That, that the gospel is spreading because these disciples are changing. That, that the proof of what God has done in them is amplified throughout the entire province. Then, even when Paul is doing his job as a tent maker, his handkerchief, which is not like a like a pocket square or anything. This is a word that was used for something you tie around your waist or your head, but it was used to swap, you know, mop your sweat to kind of like wipe off the grease and whatever, the smoke. And, and, and somehow, even that, you know, people were taking that and saying, let's just take that. And they would lay it on somebody and, and sickness and disease and evil spirits would come out. Now, a lot of times we read that and we go, well, you need to be careful because like in the Middle Ages, uh, people got way, way far into this relic stuff. Like they would think, well, if a disciple touched this special piece of cloth, it could heal your disease. Like they took it to an extreme. It was never meant to. But there was an anointing. Somehow there was an anointing and a grace that God used that wasn't about an object. It was about the Spirit of God using the, these people and, and, and even allowing them like, like He uses water in baptism or uh, oil in anointing oil or whatever. There was something about God using this object to be a point of transmission. And these people are being healed and, and, and demons are coming out. And, and then what happens is people start to hear about this and some of the people that hear about these are these Jewish exorcists. Now, this is a weird, weird thing because if you study history, you find out that the Greek and Roman world were obsessed with like this, anything foreign, especially like in a place like Ephesus. When Paul was in Athens, uh, there were a lot of idols. There were a lot of false gods, but they'd kind of like, they were sophisticated enough in their intellect that they kind of had a certain way of worshiping. In Ephesus, these people wanted everything from everywhere. They had a bunch of Eastern stuff they'd brought in, uh, had a strong Egyptian presence. In fact, there were two temples in that city, the Temple of Isis and the temp Temple of Serapis, uh, the hus husband and wife god and goddess that the Egyptians worshipped. And the stuff that took place behind there, they wouldn't even let outsiders come in until you were initiated because there were such dark practices and mysterious incantations and stuff that they would do. There was uh, right, right across the street from the school of Tyrannus is the central brothel right out there in the open, right next to the school. Paul is having a minister at a place just right down the road from the central brothel because in this city it wasn't, and in fact much of the Greek world, it wasn't seen as weird. It wasn't seen as perverse. All these, all these sexual perversion, idolatry, uh, death cults, things, weird things that you'd just be like, I can't believe this is out in the open. It was like the dark web in a city, right? But this is how far and how dark they had become. And it's in this place that Paul doesn't run. Aquila and Priscilla don't run. Timothy doesn't run. In fact, Timothy spent the rest of, you know, he, he had been in different places, but this is the place he, he, for much of his life, he pastored and was bishop over. And, and in fact, 
was murdered in the streets of Ephesus as an old man beaten to death for protesting against some of the wicked, wicked practices they were engaging in. It's in this city that is so full of the occult, so full of sorcery and witchcraft, so full of paganism, so full of all these things that God sends a team to break through the darkness with the power of light. And if you read the book of Ephesians, you see that phrase pop up a lot, that, that idea of light, that, that, that knowledge in Ephesians 5 that we are you are light, now walk as children of light. There, he talks about you were formerly darkness, now you are light. This is the reality. So there are these exorcists that are called Jewish exorcists. And in the Greco-Roman world, these guys were valued because, not because they really, you know, um, had more power or anything, but they were seen as powerful because they were mysterious. They, they, they spoke Hebrew words. And we, we have some records of these incantations that have survived. And in, in some ways, they're just using random words, like uh, random names and stuff. But to the, the Greeks and the Romans, they're thinking, wow, this, they're using special Hebrew spells. Like they had mixed the, the scripture, they mixed the worship of Yahweh with this pagan idolatry and they were making bank on it. They were making money. Uh, and maybe at times it even seemed like they were successful. We remember in Samaria that Simon the magician seemed to have uh, success, seemed to have power. But Peter rebuked him and said, you need to repent. You're, you're held in the gall of, of sin and bitterness. So something is happening. And these seven sons of a priest named Sceva, they are well known for, for being this team of Jewish exorcists. And they hear about the name of Jesus. They hear about these miracles and they go, why not add that to our arsenal? Like this name sounds like it works. And they use the name of Jesus like you'd use a spell, like you'd use a, an incantation. It's just like, this is a powerful name. This is, this is a, a name I can use that will have power. And I hope you know that the name of Jesus is not some incantation or spell. It's not just a word you say that has power because of the sound it makes. No, the name of Jesus is not just what we say. It's how we say, it's how we pray, it's, it's who we are. We are in the name of Jesus. We pray in his name. And that doesn't just mean pray your will and add in the name of Jesus at the end. It means we pray out the will of God, the will of Jesus. We pray as if he's praying that in the name of Jesus means on his behalf. And these guys, they're not doing this on behalf of Jesus. Here's what happens. They go from place to place attempting to name over those who have the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. And they, they did it this way. They said, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Like, let's just be specific. Not Jesus over there. Not Jesus that go, went, you went to school with. This is Jesus that Paul preaches. And the seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. So they weren't the only ones, but they were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul. Another translation says it this way. I know Jesus, Jesus I know and Paul I respect. I know these guys. I'm aware of these ones. I know Jesus. Why? Because he, he, this demon knows who Jesus is. This demon knows he's under Jesus, this, under the authority. Uh, that doesn't mean he's working for Jesus, but he has to submit. He has to go when Jesus says go. I mean, he knows he's scared of Jesus. And he's pretty freaked out about Paul because Paul is a minister of Jesus. But then he says, but who are you? And that evil spirit, the man in whom was the evil spirit, 
leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded, which would have been the ultimate humiliation, for, especially for Jewish people. Nakedness was great shame, was great humiliation. Seven guys got beat up by one dude who had an evil spirit. What happened when we see this happen? This incident becomes well-known around Ephesus. And it says, this became known to all. Man, I mean, talk about get canceled. You know, these guys got canceled real quick. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them, or reverence, fear and reverence. <laughs> and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. This is interesting. Because what we see is the failure of these guys to use the name of Jesus to its effect. And yet the name of Jesus actually grows. This actually is, is good. Like it, what happens is the name of Jesus is magnified because here's what they're finding. They're finding that the name of the Lord Jesus is not just some other spell, that the reason Paul and his team are having an effect on the city around them is because this is not just a spell or an incantation. They are doing this in a mighty name of Jesus. They're submitted. They're saying this is our king. And all of a sudden, this is, this is what's having an effect. And the fakes, they can't pull it off. The charlatans can't pull it off. It's not like those other words they say. It's not just a word. You are talking about a living God. And the name of Jesus is being magnified. And many of those who believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. This is a dramatic, huge amount of money that's tough to imagine. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Another way to translate, is, translate that is, in this way, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. We see later, if you keep reading, and I encourage you to do that, that the city goes up into a riot at some point because the silversmiths that have been making these little shrines of Artemis's temple, um, their business is going bad because all a bunch of people are believing and they're seeing such a change in the city that they say, if this keeps happening, nobody's going to worship our God because this guy says that, that gods that are made with hands are no gods at all. And, and, and our, our whole business is going to go out. And so they gather all the silversmiths, the idol makers, the, the people that are making their money off this idolatry and, and witchcraft and sorcery. And they say, if Christianity continues, we're going to be out of business. And, and they pump up the civic pride because see, Ephesus had this grand temple to Artemis. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was massive. It was, it, was, it was something that drew people from all over. In fact, much of the economy of Ephesus was built based on the tourism and the visitors that were brought here. We find out that, that even the temple of Artemis even had its own banking. Like they, they, they did loans and stuff like that because it was such a financial center because of all the money that this was bringing in. You see, once again, the gospel is threatening the, the greed. It's threatening the, the culture, the idolatry, all this. It's, it's, it's a threat to the status quo. And so they pump up the civic pride because the Ephesians believed, uh, many scholars believe that at some point, an astro, a meteorite hit uh, right outside of Ephesus or where, where that uh, uh, city was built on. And uh, over time, the legend over many, many years and centuries was that this was actually not just a meteorite, not just a big rock, but that the 
a perfect image of Artemis had fallen out of heaven. They believed that this perfect image of Artemis had just fallen out of heaven, so Artemis had picked this place to be her center. So over time, they built several temples. This one right here was the great temple of Artemis. And they said, this is our city. We're the city that worships this Artemis. Now, they worship many other gods. They were much like our modern culture right now, and this is why this is so familiar. If you looked at Ephesus, some of the stuff that they celebrated, it's the same stuff we celebrate today in our culture, stuff that is, is genuinely dark, but that we celebrate as good. And they gathered everything from all these different places and they just said, oh, let's just take it all and let's mix it all together. And the gospel was offensive to that because the gospel says there's one way and it's Jesus Christ. You don't mix all of this. There is one way. And people responded to that. And I want you to see that it says here that the word of God was growing mightily and prevailing and was winning. See, this is why it's more than just We've been talking about these messages when the gospel is first preached, but I want you to see the power of when the gospel continues to be preached. Like the gospel was preached to you so that you were saved, but thank God that you continued, at least I hope you are, continued to be taught, continued to grow in the grace of God, continued to grow in the word of God, continued to become a disciple. And you know you've become a disciple when it begins to change your life, when it begins to cause you to do things that are inconvenient. In, in this case, they burned their books of magic and sorcery. They were disclosing the things they were doing that they knew now. Now that they've grown, these are believers that are growing and realizing, I can't do this anymore. They're realizing that this is, this is wrong. And not only are they quitting, but they're publicly disowning those practices. They didn't go and sell them for some, and make some money and say, well, it's the Lord, I'll make money off these books, and then like, I'll sell them on eBay, and then I'll give the, the money to the Lord. No, they, they said, I don't want anybody to have these books. Now, book burning in our day and age has is, is become something totally different because uh, much of the time when we think of somebody burning books, we think of the Nazis seizing people's books and making them burn them or... Uh, uh, some group that goes and buys a bunch of books at the bookstore just for the purpose of burning them, which is really not the point here. They didn't burn their neighbor's books. They didn't go buy books from the store and burn them. These were books of sorcery, scrolls of, of, of sorcery and magic and, and spells that, that had been passed on many times from generation to generation, maybe had been purchased with a great deal of money. And these are things that they built their life upon. And they said, now we are, as it says so many times in the Bible, turning from idols, turning from witchcraft, turning from sorcery to a living God because they realized it couldn't do both. And because of this, the gospel was growing. The word of the Lord was growing mightily with power and was winning. Now, if your idea of winning is that everybody in the city got saved, and the government changed all their laws to reflect uh, you know, Judeo-Christian values, then you might have to change your definition of winning because that didn't happen in Ephesus. See, God's definition of winning is a little bit different than ours. If we're just judging by what the world looks at, then sometimes you go, this doesn't look like winning. But this was winning. The gospel was prevailing. And that's why it was opposed. That's why riots took place. That's why uh, some guys like Timothy had to give their life for the sake of the gospel because the gospel kept, kept overcoming, kept demolishing those old strongholds and the enemy sure put up a fight. You know, just to skip for a moment as we're drawing to an end here, 
to Ephesians chapter 4. This is a letter that Paul, later after he had left Ephesus, wrote to these guys, wrote to this church. In Ephesians 4, verse 17, and, and to understand this part, you really need to read Ephesians 1 through 3 in the beginning of chapter 4, because 1 through 3 starts out with talking about what Jesus has done and who we are in Christ and how he's seated in heavenly places, how we've been seated with him and the great power that, that works through Christ and works through, to, through Christ towards us who believe and, and that our eyes would be open to see it. Like It talks about this, this amazing stuff that Jesus has done and now how do you live it out? How does that change your life? That's what the gospel's got to be. You can't just say, this is what Jesus has done in the end. Amen. No, because of what Jesus has done, how, how does that change everything? That's the kingdom of God. There's a king on the throne and I'm part of that kingdom. What's different now? I've been brought out of the domain of darkness and I've brought into the, been brought into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son. So here's what it says in Ephesians 4:17. So this I say and I affirm together with the Lord that you don't walk anymore just like the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. He's talking about that perversion. He's talking about that idolatry. He's talking about the greed that caused the riots. Because they're darkened, they become callous. They no longer feel. When you first start doing this stuff that's, a, that's, that's wrong, that's evil, you feel it. But over time, a culture can become, society can become calloused. If you, if you do something enough, listen, my fingertips are callous because I played guitar for like, you know, 25 years, I guess, almost. And so over a period of time, my fingertips are callous. They're hardened. I don't feel what I used to feel. It doesn't hurt like it used to hurt. That can be a good thing in some areas. It can be a bad thing in others. It's certainly bad when it talks about the condition of your heart because your heart is meant to be sensitive to God. You were born with a conscience that, that even though the world is corrupt and even though we were born into a sinful place that somehow something inside of you knew there was good and evil. And over time, society, we become calloused. We give over ourselves to all sorts of sensuality, impurity, greediness. But he says, but you didn't learn Christ in this way. You did not learn Christ in this way. I want you to see that learning Christ, being discipled, growing in him, causes you to come out of that, causes you to come out of darkness, comes, causes you to come out of the pit, causes you to come out of bondage. You know, Luke said in the book of Acts here, when, when Paul was in Athens, it says that he saw that the city of Athens had been dominated by idolatry, was deep in idolatry. One of the words that's used there could be translated like dominated, like the idols, they were slaves to these idols. They had become enslaved to idolatry. Jesus came to set the slaves free. Here it says, when you lay that, you didn't learn Christ in this way. If indeed you've heard him, listen, and been taught in him. This is discipleship. And that's what happened in Ephesus. They heard the gospel, but then they were discipled. 
You need to hear the gospel. You need to believe the gospel, but you can't stop there. You need to keep being discipled. You need to keep growing. And discipleship is not just head knowledge. Discipleship is transformation. That's why the disciples, when Jesus called them, left their boats and followed him. That's why their lives became different. That's why they were being renewed uh, based on what Jesus was teaching and demonstrating. That's why they walked in the power of Jesus and they did the works of Jesus. That's why these disciples here changed, disclosed their practices, burned their books, went out and preached the gospel because something had changed in them. And he says, in reference, he says, if indeed you've heard him and been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside your old self. He's talking to believers who still have to lay aside the old self that that still reeks of the old person we used to be, that old manner of life. Lay it aside which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. He spends the next few verses talking about how that changes, how we relate to one another, and how we walk together as brothers and sisters. But for the sake of time, I just want to skip down to chapter five, verse one. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality, now immorality, this word here, it generally refers, if you look it up in the Greek, generally refers to sexual immorality, sexual perversion, things that God did not create sex for. He's telling them immorality or any impurity. So that's beyond that. That's, that's other things that just have nothing to do with the gospel. Or greed, Immorality, impurity, greed. Take note of those three things. Those are three things that were big in Ephesus. They were big in their culture and they're big in our culture too. He says they must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting. In other words, that's not who you are anymore. That's who you used to be, but it doesn't fit who you are now. You're a new person. But what do you do instead? Rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty. No immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, don't be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness. That's who you used to be. So he's warning them against being lured back in because while well, my family still does that. Well, my friends still do, my coworkers still do that. He's warning, don't get drawn back into that because that's not who you are anymore. Some people feel like a hypocrite when they go to church because, oh, I'm acting like I'm this nice Christian. I want to tell you, being a hypocrite is not being who you genuinely are. Ephesians is telling you, you are genuinely a new creation. You are genuinely light in the Lord. Stop acting like someone you're not anymore. In other words, being a hypocrite is when you go back and you do the things you know that don't fit you anymore. That's not who you are. I know people that say, well, I, I, I'm a sinful person and I'm, I, I, it's like I almost feel like I'm pretending to be righteous, like I'm pretending to be a good Christian. You need to get a revelation of who Jesus has made you to be. In Christ, you're righteous. In Christ, you're a new creation. You need to lay aside the old self and recognize that the new self is who you really are. And so no longer do you say, I feel like I'm faking it. You say, you know what? You know when I feel like I'm being fake? It's when I go back and do the things that I used to do because I'm not that person anymore. 
That's not who I am. I don't talk like that. I don't do that anymore. That's not me. And, 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 and you know, you got to tell yourself that. You might need to tell your friends that. And you really need to tell the devil that. Because when you're rebuking them, don't talk too long. But when you're telling them, get out of here. I, I'm not going to believe that lie. Because there's a lie that will tell you, you're still that same old person. That's why it's so important that you keep letting yourself be renewed every day. Closer and closer to the image of him. He says, don't be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness. That's who you used to be. But now you are light in the Lord. He doesn't just say you have light. He says you are light in the Lord. So walk, in other words, live, behave, live out your life as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. And this was all over Ephesus. Things that were happening behind doors that were just dark and depraved. He says, I won't even talk about them, but you don't have anything to do with that. Instead, expose that. But all things become visible when they're exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I want you to hear that, that, that God is calling us out. And what we saw in Ephesus was that the gospel wasn't just preached so that people could believe Jesus was the Son of God or Jesus was the Messiah, get saved and go to heaven. The gospel continued to be preached. The, 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 the word of the Lord continued to be preached and proclaimed in such a way that it wasn't just about getting saved. It was about being a disciple. And when you become a disciple, things shift in your life. But when you become a disciple, disciple things shift around you. Your city shifts. That's what we see here is that if we want to see change in our city, we first need to let change happen in us. If we want to see the word of the Lord grow mightily and win, in our city, in our nation, in our province. It's got to do that in us. We need to see that, Lord, if you want this to change my workplace, it's got to change me. I might have to give some things up that I used to think were normal. I'm going to, I'm going to say, no, 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 I don't want to follow you. Lord, what do you say is right? Because our compass got so thrown off. We were so darkened and callous that we didn't know which way was up. But God does. And in his love, he's setting you free from that. He's setting you free from the things that used to keep you as a slave. And now, now we have that love to go out. And not, not we're not burning our neighbor's books. We're burning our own. We're saying, hey, I don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. I, I'm throwing my old ways in the fire. I'm throwing my old practices, the things I used to do, the, the ways I used to take advantage of people, the ways I used to look at uh, women the wrong way, the way I, I used to talk to my kids, the way I used to do this, all of that. You throw it in the fire and you say, that's not who I am anymore. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of light. I'm going to walk his light. And see, everything changes. And when that changes in you, the word of the Lord is going to grow mightily and prevail in our city. We need disciples more than ever these days. One thing that's being exposed more and more is that the world doesn't really need a bunch of people to go to church. They need a bunch of people to be the church. That includes going to church, gathering, assembling. Of course, that's what we see here. They were doing it daily. But we can't just say, well, I'm just going to church. We need to become who we believe we are. 
And so in the name of Jesus, I pray over you that you would become, by putting off the old and by the grace of God putting on the new, you would say and you would take hold of the fact that I wasn't just saved so I could someday go to heaven. Thank God for that. But I was saved so I could be an instrument that the Lord uses in this life that I could be a light, that I could uh, bring light into dark places, that just like Paul and his friends went into Ephesus, that I won't run from darkness. God is not afraid of the dark, so neither am I. I'm not going to say I want nothing to do with those people. Instead, I'm going to reach them with the light of Jesus. But Lord, before I can reach anyone else, I pray that I allow you and your word to reach me, change me day by day, that I'd never be the same. I continually be growing in the grace of God. In Jesus' name, amen.